last time on Fandom Power. A lot of us in the sound community are still processing the news that R. Murray Schaefer passed away. I would characterize him as a romantic modern. He couldn't cope with the system, or the system couldn't cope with him. In fact, he got kicked out of music school. I mean, he was just a creative person on absolutely every level. He he created this kind of mystical cosmos in his works that just kind of borrows from everything. And he never stopped. He was relentless. 1965, he starts developing all this stuff on sound and noise, out of which comes the World Soundscape Project and Acoustic Ecology eventually. He wasn't the first to use the term soundscape, but he certainly was the one who unpacked what it could mean. We're faced with, like, what kind of soundscape do we want to have? And I think that it was exactly what Schaefer would challenge us with. It would seem that the world's soundscape has reached an apex of vulgarity in our time. And many experts have predicted universal universal deafness as the ultimate consequence, unless the problem can be brought quickly under under control. Welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, a monthly exploration of sound in the arts and humanities. I'm Mac Haygood. We ended our last episode with those words from R. Murray Schaefer, the avant-garde composer and founder of Acoustic Ecology and Soundscape Studies. He passed away in August. In part one of this two-part series on Schaefer, we spoke to Ellen Waterman, Hildegard Westerkamp, and Eric Leonardson about Schaefer's many contributions. If you haven't heard that show yet, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to that episode first. Link in the show notes. Today... We're going to discuss criticisms of Schaefer and think about what role his ideas might play in the future study of sound. And what better place to start than with Schaefer's own words in his landmark book, The Soundscape. When I first read it as a graduate student, I was thrilled to find such a book about the sonic environment, but I was also a little thrown by some of its very unscholarly claims. Universal deafness? According to whom? There's no citation. This raw, polemical tone and loose talk both attracted and repelled me, and apparently I wasn't the only one. I certainly appreciated the, like, polymathic dimensions of it, and it's, I mean, I think that this is actually true of a lot of composers who are intellectuals. There's just a uh, a sort of willful anti-disciplinarity in the intellectual dimensions that really, I think, is fertile and, like, should be encouraged in other people. But there's also, like, a kind of amateurism, which, on one hand, we should encourage, and on the other means sometimes they say pretty outrageous things. Jonathan Stern is professor and James McGill Chair in Culture and Technology at McGill University's Department of Art History and Communication Studies. He's a prominent voice in the field of sound studies which, for the uninitiated, may sound like soundscape studies or acoustic ecology, but it has a different focus. I mean, it's hard to generalize about these things, but if acoustic ecologists are more focused on documenting the soundscape and preserving and perfecting it and experimenting with it to make really cool art, the sound studies folks are the ones asking, wait a minute, what is this alleged soundscape thing we speak of here? What is its intellectual and technological history? 
and who benefits and who loses from thinking about sound in this way? I mean, I profoundly disagreed with the social theory behind it. There was a Jeremiah dimension to it. We used to live in this like pastoral, holistic community that's faded away, and now we live in this fallen urban situation. Uh, quiet is better than loudness. I, which I, you know, firmly rejected then and still intellectually reject. One of Jonathan Stern's biggest objections to the Soundscape book is the way that Schaefer theorizes audio media, especially in his key concept, schizophonia. Schizophonia is the word that Schaefer uses for sounds that have been split from their sources, as in radio, MP3, TV, or any kind of sound recording. Schizophonia. I think of it as the term that Schaefer invents to get us goldfish to notice the bowl of water we're swimming in. We're so immersed in mediated sounds that most of us never stop to think about it. Now we could have an ontological argument about whether sound is ever really attached to a source to begin with. But beyond that, there's also a heavy value judgment built into this term. Listen to how Schaefer describes recorded sound in this clip from the short film entitled, Listen. A real sound, of course, is absolutely unique. It has an excitement about it and probably an authenticity, a fidelity that will never be achieved by recordings. But what you're hearing now is not real sound. My voice isn't coming from me. It's coming from sounds that were made a long time ago. For Schaefer, recorded sound is not real sound. The sonic waters we swim in are befouled with synthetic pollution, and it's damaging us, leading to universal deafness. I thought he had this bizarre relationship to sound technology where, on one hand, it was this thing that ruined your relationship to sound, right? The schizophonia concept, which I don't think I had the words in the 90s to call it ableist, but it is. It's based on uh, based on a non-schizophrenics understanding of schizophrenia, and it's also very much based on sort of stereotypes about mental illness and the denigration of mental illness as a metaphor for the fallenness of sound recording. Hildegard Westerkamp was in the room when terms like schizophonia were being coined. She acknowledges the validity of critiques like Stern's, but she also says that people today have lost sight of the irreverent anti-corporate spirit in which these terms were used. You know, they didn't know how much fun we had when these words were coined in our meetings while he was writing the book. Um, it was a lot of it was playful and very intelligent and very um, inclusive of, of a, a larger meaning and trying to find words for sonic situations that there were no words for before. And that's why it's significant. We now do have a word. And yes, it's controversial. I can see why people would be upset about it. Um, it also, in some cases, reflects on that, you know, schizophrenia, putting down schizophrenia. The thing that 
Schaefer tends to serve people critiques on the platter is that he makes a kind of smart one-liners. At the same time, of course, the World Soundscape Project had this very animated and active use of sound recording as a modality of scholarship and documentation that really wasn't being done anywhere else. As Jonathan points out, there's a real irony to Schaefer's denigration of sound recording technology in that his World Soundscape project made such expert use of it as a scholarly tool, using field recording as a way of documenting and analyzing the acoustic environment. But it gets even weirder, because for all of Schaefer's distaste for urban and recorded sounds, Jonathan Stern identifies urban scholarship and audiophile culture as two important influences on Schaefer's concept of the soundscape. I think there's a lot of good in terms of asking questions and also like there's some value in going back to Schaefer's sources. So Schaefer's soundscape concept at least comes in part from Michael Southworth's Cityscape. Okay, so here Jonathan is talking about Southworth's 1969 essay, The Sonic Environment of Cities, in which he uses the word soundscape to further develop the work of his MIT advisor, Kevin Lynch. Lynch coined the term cityscape to help urban planners think about the city in a more holistic manner. Southworth was trying to add a sonic and ephemeral component to this analysis. Schaefer had already been using the term soundscape to talk about music in a spatial way, but Stern says Southworth's essay influenced Schaefer's environmental expansion of the concept. But Southworth had a much more uh, sense of like cities and urban life as vibrant things, and so it's possible to say like let's bring that back in to the way we think about it. But the other big influence on Schaefer. I think, has to be like 50s and 60s hi-fi culture. Greetings to all record enthusiasts. While you are playing this test recording, please seat yourself in a position between the two loudspeakers at the same distance from each. Because the language he's using is the language they were using in hi-fi magazines and in advertising for home, what we would now call like home audio. So soundscape was the thing you got, uh, you know, the thing you got between your two stereo speakers when you're listening to the symphony in your living room with your pipe. Obviously this is like a very male fantasy. In order to test the symmetry and correct positioning of your apparatus, will you now please Adjust the treble and bass controls for both channels until the tone quality from both channels is found to be identical as well as satisfactory. But it is this idea that you've got the best seat in the house and that a sonic world is made available to you through this technological system. And they used the word soundscape. Come in. I am E.G. Marshall. Welcome to the world of terrifying imagination. The other people that use the word soundscape 
uh, were uh, radio theater producers to describe the sort of audi- the fictional auditory world. I mean, you could say it's sort of sonic, the sonic version of mise-en-scene uh, or set design uh, in, in theater or film. So it's the sonic world in which the action is happening. Now look, Clint, or whatever your name is, I don't like you and I don't like your insinuations. Now, if you don't get out of my office and leave these premises immediately, I'll have you put out. And all of those concepts would have been very available and very present to Schaefer. And a lot of, like, composers and music school people were into hi-fi culture and, like, had their nice stereos. Um, And so he would have absolutely been exposed to that. In fact, Schaefer uses the term hi-fi repeatedly in his book, appropriating it from audiophile culture and applying it to the lived soundscape. As Schaefer writes, A hi-fi environment is one in which sounds may be heard clearly, without crowding or masking. Schaefer contrasts this with a lo-fi environment in which sounds crowd and or mask one another. In Schaefer's view, one of the main contributors to the lo-fi environment we typically inhabit is the hyperabundance of schizophonic sound and music reproduced through amplification technologies. So there's a strange circularity here where an audiophile's aesthetic mode of listening is used to critique the technologies from which that mode of listening is derived. And so his concept of soundscape brings some of the values of that hi-fi culture and the idea that there's a listener in this imaginary position outside of the soundscape that can apprehend it. The idea of a social totality, which is this sort of cityscape thing, right? And then this sound collage thing. And I think that all collides in the soundscape book and in his work in that period and even in the World Soundscape Projects, like Preservationist Impulse. It's those three things brought together. Right, and then people like Hildegard Westerkamp take it further by turning it in on itself and commenting on the process as it's happening in works like Kit Speech, Soundwalk. It's a calm morning. I'm on Kit Speech in Vancouver. It's slightly overcast and very mild for January. It's absolutely wind still. The ocean is flat, just a bit rippled in places. Ducks are quietly floating on the water. Produced in 1989, Westerkamp's Kitts Beach Soundwalk is a sophisticated and evocative meditation on the relationship between city noise, recording technology, and the sonic imagination. Thinking reflexively about field recording, she examines audio production as an interface between the environmental soundscape and the soundscape of recording. Luckily, we have bandpass filters and equalizers. 
we can just go into the studio and get rid of the city. Pretend it's not there. Pretend we are somewhere far away. These are the tiny, the intimate voices of nature, of bodies, of dreams, of the imagination. Unlike her mentor, Schaefer, Westerkamp conceives of these so-called schizophonic sounds as authentic allies in a very personal navigation of the sonic environment. These sounds populate and catalyze her dreams, and they help her achieve a playful and thus less harmful relationship to the monster of city noise. As soon as I make space to hear sounds like this, or to dream them, then I feel the strength to face the city again, or even to be playful with it. Play with a monster, then I can face the monster. It's important not to caricature Murray Schaefer or portray his conception of mediated sound as overly simplistic. In fact, Hildegard tells me that she learned about Pierre Schaefer's musique concrète and his notion of the sound object from Murray Schaefer himself. In this CBC radio clip, we can hear Schaefer introducing one of Barry Truax's early soundscape compositions and elaborating on the artistic possibilities of recorded sound objects. I use the term composed soundscape for what Barry has done is to take some natural environmental sounds, record them, and then subject them to several kinds of transformation, which often render them unidentifiable. When you strip away the, the association of a sound, you strip away the uh, symbolism that accrues to any sound in a person's mind, and you're just dealing with abstract sound objects, then you uh, allow the fantasy um, to create new associations. And I suppose, in a sense, this is what you're aiming for in the program. That's right, and I hope that listeners will be able to indulge in that kind of fantasizing. Well, let's find out. But unfortunately, as Westerkamp explains, Schaefer ultimately couldn't see the value in the innovative soundscape compositions that she and her colleague Barry Truax and others were creating. Murray was very critical of soundscape composition. Uh, his feeling was that what we needed to do, we needed to continue the research of the World Soundscape Project. 
the research of uh, the Vancouver soundscape. Schaefer was asked for his thoughts on soundscape composition outside of the World Forum for Acoustic Ecologies conference in Corfu, Greece, back in 2011. The tape is a little noisy, but his disapproval comes through loud and clear. My third question is about what do you think about today's approaches to soundscape composition and its different well, approaches? I, I th- I'm a critic of that. Yeah? Yes, because I don't think that you know, musical composition is identical with soundscape research. I think that there is a relationship, as I said before, you know, we want to, music should be beautiful, um, and it should be attractive and original, and the soundscape should be beautiful, and it should be attractive, and it should be original too. So there's a combination there. But, I mean, composing music always has a certain, um, well, egocentric sort of uh, drive, you know. I say that because I'm a composer too, but I do keep my my compositions separate from the work that I do in the acoustic environment. And I think that most composers should do that. Okay. (laughs) His real rejection of it came out when, in 1996, we did a second project here that was... um, kind of coined as a continuation of the World Soundscape Project. Uh, And we invited four composers to use the World Soundscape Project um, tape collection uh, to make compositions with. And Schaefer was furious that that would be called the continuation of the the Vancouver Soundscape. It didn't occur to me at the time. I thought, yeah, he's right. (laughs) We're not continuing the research at all. We're just giving sound material to composers who are sensitive enough to uh, use them for to actually make soundscape compositions and not just electroacoustic compositions using environmental sound as material, right? That's the big difference, right? So, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm glad you brought up this this sort of difference between Schaefer's approach and yours and Barry Truax's approach to audio media because, you know, he's famous for coining this, this uh, pejorative term of schizophonia and he doesn't quite acknowledge how much his own mode of listening to the environment actually owes its, its existence to audio recording, you know, like the, and that debt is even reflected in the terminology of hi-fi and lo-fi, which of course comes from exactly. audiophile equipment. Of course. <laughs> no, and, and I mean, I used to say that to him too. He said, look, you, you know, you, you got the funding for the studio. We have the recordings. We have and he just chuckled. <laughs> <laughs> he knew, but um, I mean, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but I'm, I'm sensing that what he felt was happening was happening was the traditions of electroacoustic music were now being transferred to environmental sounds uh, so that environmental sounds became material but they their meanings it was stripped of their meanings and the context of it and i must agree i mean there's many people who call something a soundscape composition just because it's using environmental sound but it's not actually Uh, uh, creating a relationship to the soundscape. We'll be back in a moment with more fandom power. Mm -hmm. 
Hey there, it's Mac, walking across the beautiful campus of Miami University where I work as a professor. I know that right now my voice is reaching more people than one of my scholarly articles ever will, but it's also true that my output of scholarly articles has definitely taken a hit due to the time it takes for me to produce these episodes for you. And it's fair for my colleagues and my administrators here at the university to ask whether this podcast should be part of my job, and that's where you come in. My colleagues are academics, so that means they're going to want to see evidence that this show is valuable as a form of public scholarship. So if you could just take a second right now to pause the show and share it with a friend or share it on social media, that will grow the audience in a way that they can see in hard numbers. And if you rate and review Phantom Power on Apple Podcasts, that's evidence that they can see too. So please take a second to share, rate, and review. And thank you. I've been writing a lot and thinking a lot about this piece that they did in 1974 called Soundscapes of Canada. So it was broadcast on the CBC on this program called Ideas, which is like really the premier sort of public intellectual forum in Canada. On Ideas, you get maybe one episode, maybe two, maybe three on any given topic. They gave World Sandscape Project 10 episodes. Mitchell Akiyama is assistant professor of visual studies at the University of Toronto's Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape and Design. In addition to being an artist and a composer, He's also a sound studies scholar. Akiyama's critique of Schaefer and the World Soundscape Project focuses primarily on the racial and colonial dimensions of their work. Sort of the frame of the whole show was that members of the World Soundscape Project took a field trip from one end of the country to the other. Material for this series was recorded last year on a cross-country field trip by members of the World Soundscape Project at Simon Fraser University. And recorded everything in between. And, you know, of course, that they, they didn't, but it's set up in your mind as being this sort of maybe not exhaustive but like a, a survey of the entire country and it was happening right at the moment when immigration from non-european countries started to outstrip immigration from european countries so like right at the moment when they're making this program the ethnic makeup of the country was was completely changing and so what you get in this uh, it's really mainly two episodes of this series. Uh, one was called Sound Marks, and that was in their, uh, you know, in their thinking, like Sound Marks are these sonic analogs to landmarks. So a sound that kind of anchors people in a sense of place. Still other sounds, such as sound marks, have even greater powers, for they can evoke moods and cast spells on the listener. Such sounds are not easily forgotten, and hearing them again after an absence can evoke a whole wave of memories about a particular place and time. In short, what the sound mark possesses is symbolism. So they, they went across the country recording sound marks.
but these sound marks are almost without exception, like church bells, trains, um, sounds of sort of colonial industry, colonial uh, infrastructure. Um, so if you're if you're thinking like, well, a sound is something that grounds you and feel, makes you feel attached to to land, to environment, to community. Well, what kind of community are, are you meant to feel grounded in? In this case, like clearly, it's a settler community. This horn has voiced warning to countless sailors of the harbor area since 1912. It's almost as old as the city itself. Many Vancouverites have a special place in their hearts for the old horn, for it blows through the winter gloom faithfully, giving a kind of uh, acoustic perspective uh, to the gray, visually shrunken world of the Vancouver winter. Its voice, heard from afar, is that of a steadfast friend. Uh, and then there's this other episode called, I think it's called Directions. And, and it's, it's brilliant. It's really cool. They, what they did was they, as they were driving across the country, they would, they would pull up and ask people for directions. When Bruce Davis and Peter Hoos traveled across Canada last year in search of interesting sounds, they frequently had to ask directions to get to the places where the sounds were to be found. Each time they asked directions, they recorded the replies. Tonight's program consists of the answers they received, and it was composed by Peter Hoos. So what you get is these changing accents across the country. And uh, in the intro, Schaefer says something like, And, and they're marvelous, marvelous accents. I wonder if you'll discover your own among them. But so that's the thing, is like when you listen back... Well, bike sound would be the best I imagine. I don't know, though. So it's just one mile of water. Land on each side. Turn to your right when you go to the border. You up for miles. And keep on going. Bike sound. You know, you'll see somebody there. But there's kind of a landlock with the land there, the pike's arm, you know? But they go up in Tuchel's arm, go to the right. You got back a little while and up, you can see it, you know? There, I think there may be a to two minutes tops of people who aren't Anglophones or Francophones. And so again, like you're a, a, a white dude in your car in Regina, Saskatchewan, um, listening to the CBC, to Ideas, and you hear Schaefer saying, maybe you'll hear your accent amongst these Canadian accents. And you do. And that reinforces your sense of, yeah, that's me. That's my country. But then you're uh, a Jamaican Canadian in Kensington Market in Toronto listening to that. And Schaefer says, you'll, maybe you'll hear your accent in there. And of course you don't. So I don't, I don't, I really don't think that it was deliberately exclusionary in any way, but I guess I was just thinking about that program in that moment as being this sort of, uh, kind of like a, an inflection point in, in Canada's idea of nationhood where you have a very white, uh, waspy, uh, European group of people who are the ones whose voices are on the media, who control representation, um, and effectively, who are the ones who get to decide what, what the country is and what it should be. But also, 
there's a sense of it advancing this idea of what the country was. So there's a, a nostalgia for all these disappearing sound marks, all these like that those wistful, win, uh, winsome train sounds, and um, you know we're losing all that in favor of uh, different kinds of industry and, and mechanization and stuff. And isn't it a, sh a shame that we we're losing these um, these these sounds that anchor us in our kind of colonial past, which is kind of weird and problematic. It almost feels like there's just such a an incomplete understanding of this really useful terminology that he himself developed of like what a soundscape is or what sound marks are from today's view. And I'm sure from the view of non-white, non-European people, even at the time, these glaring omissions from what is included in those categories. Yeah, totally. And that's one of the things that is so compelling about Schaefer, I guess. He just was able to say, okay, well, we live in a visual, visually biased society. I'm just going to find all of these nodes of visual bias and substitute in a sonic analog for that and see what mm -hmm. happens, which is really, really interesting. And so I think you're right. Like the, 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 there are all these omissions, but it's because like we have these placeholders for the, for where the omissions are that allow us to do the work of rectifying or addressing those emissions so because he has an idea of sound marks and but because they only gave us your sort of settler colonial sound marks we're able to go back and ask well what are non-settler colonial sound marks and have the have, have those been damaged or silenced or moved onto reservations or or just removed um and so like there are omissions, but then there's also stuff that's just kind of nasty, <laughs> like really, really bad. Here, Mitch Akiyama is referring to writings of Schaefer's, like his program notes for his piece, North White. In these program notes, Schaefer describes what he calls the rape of the Canadian North. For Schaefer, the North of Canada is the true Canada, a place of purity and austerity. To draw a contrast, he disparages urban Canadians. There are few true Canadians, and they are not to be found in cities. They do not sweat in discotheques, eat barbecued meatballs, or watch late movies on television. They do not live in high-rise apartments, preferring a clean space to the smell of neighbor's spaghetti. Escaping to the North is a necessary thing because it's, it's what gets you away from all of this like really gross mixing that's happening in the South. Like who wants to smell their neighbor's spaghetti? Um, and, and cause wow. like spaghetti is an ethnic food, I guess in 1970 or whatever. So like there's, there's the, this like really nasty racism in, in a lot oh. of his work. There are all these value judgments about, they're there in a lot of the notes to Soundscapes of Canada and to the the recording projects they did in Europe. Um, you know, lines like uh, "Skip Skip Toronto." Who wants to hear a city anyway? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Jonathan Stern. But there is this idealization of like Western civilization, of like Greek models of sociability, and of small community at the expense of like anything massive, cosmopolitan or polyglot that I just fundamentally disagreed with. I mean, he used to make some outrageous statements. And I mean, I don't know whether you've read Hungry Listening, but the first quote in there when i read that i just about fainted 
One of the most talked about books in sound studies and musicology from the past few years, Dylan Robinson's Hungry Listening is, in part, a critique of composers who appropriate indigenous music and deploy it in the service of musical nationalism. The book opens with a quote from Murray Schaefer's 1961 essay on the limits of nationalism in Canadian music. The Eskimos are such an astonishingly unmusical race that the composer really has to wring his material to make it musically presentable. There is a marked similarity between an Eskimo singing and Sir Winston Churchill clearing his throat. I can say what I want about he was 28 years old and it was in 1961 and everybody in Canada was not really conscious about First Nations and Inuit. On the other hand, it's such an outrageous statement that um, nowadays you you can't you, <laughs> you can't ignore it. I mean, sometimes people say, but everybody, all you know, all the white people were racist then, but that's just not true. I mean, maybe the anti-racist position was a less well-acknowledged or developed position in scholarship, but you could find other scholars who weren't writing that way. And the irony is, in that same book where that quote appears, by the end of it, he talks about the problems of colonialism. Right. So that contradiction between him making these really outrageous statements and then being completely conscious of the indigenous situation in Canada. I should say as a European immigrant, <laughs> he made me aware in a way of Inuit and indigenous cultures uh, that made it, that it opened it up to me, that made it meaningful that made me want to know more. There was a, a listening happening there. And, you know, his in his Patria cycle, many people, uh, of course, um, talk about him appropriating um, those cultures. Well, he's appropriating Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology, Chinese mythology, all of that. He is in that large cycle. He is in a mythological world highly educated about all those mythologies and putting them together as a composer in his own storytelling mythology, right? That's how I would put it, not to excuse him in terms of how he uses it. One could probably find all sorts of wrongdoings there. I think some of the complexities and contradictions of Schaefer's relationship to indigenous people and indigenous music are captured in one of his graphic scores. The 1971 piece entitled Minnewanka, or Moments of the Water. Schaefer's graphic notation utilizes his skills as a visual artist. He both visually and musically represents mists, waves, waterfalls, and so on. The Vancouver Chamber Choir has posted a side-scrolling video that follows the score along with their performance, and it's beautiful. Check out the link in the show notes. The first page of the score features a note in Schaefer's own hand, explaining that the text consists entirely of words for different states of water, as found in 10 different Native American languages. I can and I do hear this as a beautiful piece of music. But how does it sound from an indigenous perspective? In a way, 
Native Americans are made both present and absent at once, as these isolated, decontextualized words are made to stand in for the state of nature. I don't know what it feels like to hear some of the work from an indigenous perspective. I mean, Dylan Robinson would be able to speak very intelligently about that and would also have more understanding about that. And I highly respect the way he teaches us now about what is it like when you listen as an indigenous person to Schaefer or to other composers' uh, music who have been using music from indigenous cultures. I should say that I did invite Dylan Robinson to be on this show to talk about Schaefer and his legacy, but I didn't hear back from him. All of my guests in this two-part series brought up Robinson's critique in Hungry Listening. And in fact, Ellen Waterman co-wrote the book's Unusual Conclusion, in which Robinson engages with her and Deborah Wong in a discussion of indigeneity, inclusion, and listening. Waterman is also currently working on a longer-term critical book project on Schaefer's legacy that grapples with these issues. So, what do we do with the contradictory figure of Armory Schaefer? A renegade scholar who used sound technology to create an entirely new field of study, even as he devalued the very tools of its trade. A gifted composer who, I believe at least, had a sincere appreciation for indigenous cultures, yet one who perhaps could only love them on his own terms, only as they fit into his own sweeping vision for a Canadian music. An erudite reader with a deep knowledge of world cultures, who nevertheless dismissed Canada's most multicultural areas as less than truly Canadian. And a man who, despite a bomb-throwing persona on the page, is described by everyone I've interviewed who knew him as a kind and generous person. He's described even that way by his critic, Mitchell Akiyama, who once served as a teaching assistant for none other than R. Murray Schaefer. I'm not surprised that he's remained so influential because some of those ideas are just so, whether whether they continue to be useful in the way that he intended them to be or whether they're useful in the negative, they're still useful. So I take sound walks with my classes all the time. Um, I, I... read his stuff on pedagogy and i think it's wonderful i think he was he was an amazing teacher and um also i find him to be a really good index for thinking about the the ways in which politics and exclusion seep into every domain of our lives i mean i think that's one of the misconceptions we have is you know when we're read critiques of people that there's this it's sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for blood sport or uh or a life or death thing. I have this pretty scorched earth critique of like the soundscape concept and the pastoralism in his work, but that doesn't mean I don't admire it or respect him as an intellectual. We just disagree. And that's okay. And that's actually really important. Like in the age of social media and like one line takedowns on Twitter and stuff, 
I think it's incumbent on us to uh, really like, you know, still respect the intellectual process and uh, people's ideas and nurture creativity in others and say, being wrong doesn't make you like evil or the, your work useless. And I read people I disagree with all the time. So yeah, I found, I wouldn't say, probably compared to other people you've interviewed, I wouldn't say his work was formative for me, but I did draw inspiration from it and it uh, made me think about a lot of stuff. And it was incredibly useful as a foil. You might say if Murray Schaefer didn't exist, I would have had to invent him. And maybe this is the greatest indicator that R. Murray Schaefer will continue to have a lasting impact on the study of sound. The fact that we haven't stopped arguing with him yet. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Thank you to Mitchell Akiyama, Jonathan Stern, and Hildegard Westerkamp. Today we heard elements from Listen, a short film by David New, Kids Beach Soundwalk by Hildegard Westerkamp, the CBC radio program Soundscapes of Canada, a performance of Schaefer's Minnewanka by the Vancouver Chamber Choir, and an interview with Armory Schaefer by Rafael de Oliveira, Patricia Lima, and Alexander Duarte. You can find transcripts and links to some of the things we've heard about and talked about today at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, tell a friend about us, or share a link to us on social media, or just give us a shout on Twitter or Facebook at Phantom Pod. Today's show was written and edited by me, Mac Haygood. We heard music by R. Murray Schaefer and Virio. And our outro music is by Blue the Fifth. Take care and see you next time.